Okay, we will get started for mm -hmm. what will be a very, very interesting session. And we will ask Rhonda Evans, the director of the Center for Australian New Zealand Studies, to introduce our speaker. Well, it's a pleasure for the Clark Center to once again partner with British Studies to bring a scholar to Austin to participate in this esteemed seminar. I'm especially delighted to introduce today's speaker, Professor Philip Goad, as I met him only last week at the annual meeting of the Australian New Zealand Studies Association of North America in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Based on the marvelous keynote address that he delivered there, I can say with confidence that we're in for a real treat this afternoon. Hmm. Professor Goad is the Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser Visiting Professor of Australian Studies at Harvard University. At his home institution, the University of Melbourne, he is the Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor and Chair of Architecture. Professor Goad also earned his PhD in Architectural History from the University of Melbourne, and he's taught there since 1992, during which time he served as founding director of the Melbourne School of Design between 2007 and 2012. Professor Goad's research focuses on areas concerning architectural history, theory, and design. He is an authority on modern Australian architecture with particular expertise on the life and work of Robin Boyd, which is the subject of today's talk. Professor Goad has a long list of publications, professional accomplishments, and accolades to which I cannot possibly do justice, so I will highlight only a few. He is co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Australian Architecture, published by Cambridge University Press. And by my count, he's co-authored a half dozen books that consider various aspects of modernism in Australian art, design, and architecture. I'll draw your attention to one book in particular that examines the Bauhaus diaspora, which was the fascinating subject of his keynote address at the conference we both attended last week. Finally, I'll note that Professor Goad is a life fellow of the Australia New Zealand uh, Society of Architectural Historians and the Victorian chapter of the Australian <coughs> Institute of Architects, having previously served both organizations in various capacities. In 2008, he was made a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. We are grateful to Professor Goad for making the trip to Austin, particularly since he just made the trip to Mexico last week to attend that conference. And given that right now in Cambridge it's about 23 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. <laughs> I suspect he is also grateful to be here with us today. I will now give the floor to Professor Goad. Well, we seem to have misplaced our podium. Uh, do you mind speaking, sitting instead of standing? Well, um, uh, this is fine, so long as you can all hear me. Great. Okay, so I should, I should be fine. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rhonda. Um, in terms of weather, it feels very much like uh, an Australian uh, autumn, I have to say, uh, or a Melbourne autumn. So it's very beautiful to be here. So I'd like to thank Professors Roger Lewis and Philippa Levine, co-directors of the British Studies Program, and of course, Dr Rhonda Evans, director of the Clark Centre here at the University of Texas, for the opportunity to, re to speak to you uh, today. Now, my subject today is the participation of an Australian architect, Robin Boyd, in the major debates on the future of modern architecture in the 1950s and 1960s. Boyd, who you see on the screen, wrote regularly in the important British and American architectural journals. And this was unusual. He was an Australian. 
On the one hand, as an observer from the periphery, he gave balance and critical perspective across transatlantic divides. On the other, his participation was demonstrable evidence of an escape from labels of provincialism that dogged Australian culture in the same period. Boyd, even though he was an outsider, offered valuable opinion on architecture's global direction at a time of crisis in the discipline. In the two decades after World War II, from around 1945 to around 1965, architectural journals played a key role in shaping global architecture culture more than ever before. In the aftermath of a destructive war, there emerged a crisis of confidence in architecture's ability to satisfy fundamental human, even existential needs. It wasn't just that Europe faced the daunting prospect of reconstruction or that there was a desperate need for housing of all kinds across multiple continents or that there was to be an imminent boom across all sections of the building industry. There was no overwhelming consensus as to what direction modern architecture might take. In the English-speaking world, beyond the closed and rarefied meetings of elite groups of international architects like CM on the left, the Congress International in, uh, Architecture Moderne, or CM as it's often known, and its renegade offshoot from 1953, the group who called themselves Team 10, both of which fostered their own networks of architectural discourse and were arguably influential in doing so. Most architects, though, and most architecture firms subscribed as part of their daily practice to at least one, possibly more, local architectural journals and often an international journal or two as well. As members of a profession, architects also received the official documents of record from their respective institutes. In Britain, it was the highly respected Royal Institute of British Architects Journals, the RIBAJ. And in the US, it was the AIAJ, the Journal of the American Institute of Architects. And these journals dutifully recorded the business of the Institute, its meetings and awards, and sometimes lectures by esteemed guests and the questions that followed. Rainer Banham's RIB lecture, RIBA lecture in February of 1961, for example, was called The History of the Immediate Future. And it became famous as a text that signalled Rainer Banham's urging of the British architecture profession to assimilate the human sciences into architecture or else risk introspection. But most architects tended to focus on the commercial journals, where practical information on building materials and construction was complemented by written and often lavish photographic reviews of buildings, as well as the occasional piece of architectural history, theory or criticism, as well as the ob obligatory morass of advertising that kept these journals financially afloat. In Great Britain, that meant on the left, the Architectural Review and the Architect's Journal. And in the United States, that meant a much larger selection of magazines. Architectural Record, Architectural Forum, Progressive Architecture, all based in New York. And from 1940, bottom right, the Los Angeles-based Arts and Architecture, rejuvenated under the editorship of John Intenza. Of all of these journals, it was the British one, the Architectural Review, which carried the most cachet as the intellectual and critical journal of the day. Its editor was J.M. Richards on the left, who had an impressive support staff of writers, including at various times the émigré historian Nicholas Pevsner 
and his recent PhD student, Rainer Bannum, is the large gentleman on the left who then grew an extraordinarily large beard um, in the 60s. Historians like John Summerson, later Sir John Summerson on the far right. There was also a young Colin Rowe who taught briefly here in Austin uh, in the 1950s at UT. And also the architect and illustrator Gordon Cullen amongst others. Indeed, J.M. Richards and his editorial team assumed for AR a superior position within the global profession. And during the 1950s, it promoted a form of triangulation of architectural discourse. The UK was a centre of ideas and critique. The US, in British eyes, was a centre of production and limited critique. And Italy was another centre of ideas and critique. And typical of this was the spat created between Rainer Bannum and the Italian editor Ernesto Rogers, when Bannum accused the Italians in the late 50s of, ret of retreating from modern architecture and regressing to a form of what he called neo-liberty, a directionless return to a local form of Art Nouveau. Or AR's special feature on man-made America on the left in December 1950, which showed British distaste with American consumerism and, I quote, the mess that is man-made America. But then in 1957, on the right, machine-made America, a complete about-face of its earlier position that showed now a British fascination with American technical achievements, automobiles, film and the irresistible rise of the glazed curtain wall skyscraper. So where does an Australian architect fit into this transatlantic and transcontinental journalistic power play? Why should he want to be part of it and to what end? I want to show briefly this afternoon two reasons for this. First, that Melbourne-based architect Robin Boyd, a gifted architectural writer in his own right, wanted at a personal level to position himself in that discourse, to engage with it and contribute to it. Clearly, he felt equipped to do so. And second, at an altruistic level, Boyd wanted to insert Australian architecture into the global conversation on modern architecture. In effect, what he was doing was that he positioned himself internationally to act as a mouthpiece for Australian architecture. Now, why? To effectively demonstrate to the outside world that Australia's own architectural culture was not parochial, and also to demonstrate to the Australian architecture profession back home that its work was on par with the rest of the world, and if it wasn't, it should aspire to be so. So let's start around 1950. In 1950, Robin Boyd, trained as an architect in 1930s Melbourne, was 30 years old. He was already a well-known architectural writer in his own city and within the architecture profession nationally. As a student, He'd founded in 1939 uh, uh, the critical pamphlet journal called Smudges, which was a direct play on the US journal Pencil Points. It's a nice sort of ironic uh, <laughs> twist. And he and his fellow students awarded blots and bouquets of the month to good and bad buildings in Melbourne, a practice which could potentially be revived. Uh, uh, certainly the students got into legal trouble with one firm of architects. They uh, printed an apology in a serious Gothic typeface. <laughs> Boyd had also written for the student annual Lines, an article that drew its title, uh, uh, Sharavari, from the British satirical journal Punch. 
Serving in New Guinea during World War II, he wrote about the future of the post-war house and the post-war city for the army newsletter Salt. And in 1947, he'd been appointed director of the Royal Victorian Institute of Architects Small Home Service. And in that role, he wrote weekly articles on contemporary architecture for the Melbourne newspaper The Age, a task that he undertook for six years, which made him a household name in the state of Victoria. So he's practising as an architect, writing for the newspaper, a weekly article of about four or 500 words, as well as running this small little home service, offering uh, uh, prospective homeowners plans and specifications for about 10 US dollars, five Australian pounds. In 1947, Boyd also published the first account of the history of modern architecture in Victoria, and the book was called Victorian Modern. He also designed the book's cover and its typography. In Victorian Modern, Boyd proposed the idea of the Victorian type a locally developed form of modern architecture that others around the world, namely cultural critics like Lewis Mumford here in the States, would identify that same year in the case of San Francisco's Bay Area as a regional style. This was Boyd's answer to a regional style, the same year that Lewis Mumford uh, 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 came to national attention here for talking about regionalism. In 1950, Boyd and his wife Patricia made a six-month trip to Europe, his first, as part of the Haddon Travelling Scholarship. And in London, he deliberately introduced himself to J.M. Richards at the Architectural Review's offices. And shortly after, afterward, in September of 1951, his first article for AR was published. Titled A New Eclecticism, this article was one of Boyd's most important statements on post-war architectural theory. In arguing for a broader interpretation of functionalism and using a classic binary technique, technique of comparison, Boyd argued that one might consider functionalism from multiple inclusive viewpoints. And he used two Australian houses as examples, one by the Viennese emigre, Harry Seidler, the other by Melbourne architect, Roy Grounds. And both approaches, he urged, were valid works of modern architecture. No one was better than the other even though both drew from different aesthetic and material practices. And what he was arguing for was that surely one can, if one satisfies function, you can, we can talk about an idea of vital eclecticism at this time, a vital idea of choice. And in doing so, Robin Boyd was teasing readers with another ism because the review at this stage had published widely about what they called new empiricism in the mid-1940s, the idea of Swedish regional architecture. Boyd's article appeared in 1951, titled New Eclecticism, and famously, Rainer Banham's New Brutalism, another one, appeared in 1955. While the terms New Empiricism and New Brutalism stuck and have since become part of architecture's lingua franca, Boyd's eclecticism did not. Despite architecture historians today acknowledging the multiple directions of post-war modern architecture, Boyd's inclusive relativism was too radical an idea in 1951. It was just essentially too sensible. The other problem was that the term eclecticism smacked of history, of the 19th century, of dalliance rather than the masculine rational tones of empiricism and brutalism that evoked British philosophical thought and avant-garde French art practice. Undeterred both Boyd and AR, the British Journal, uh, uh, further articles by Boyd soon appeared. 
His next piece was called Port Phillip Idiom, Recent Houses in the Melbourne Region, and it brought his regionalist architect argument for Australian architecture to the world stage. While later articles on Melbourne's Victorian era architecture, on Victorian cast iron, and recent embassy buildings in Canberra, none of them any good, I'd have to say, <laughs> gave international readers a broad understanding of Australian architecture. Boyd's next major theoretical piece in February 56 reiterated his 1951 call for a, a more inclusive understanding of what functionalism in modern architecture might mean. And at this time, his title, The Functional Neurosis, hit the mark. No mention of Australia at all, nor the E word, eclecticism, but a call for architects to accept that modern architecture might entail newfound rich, richness and yet not abandon its obedience to the satisfaction of function. Now, 1956 was an important year for Boyd. That year, he accepted an invitation from the Dean of Architecture at MIT, the architect Pietro Belusky, to spend a year in Cambridge as visit visiting Bemis Professor for the 1956-57 academic year. Aside from minimal teaching duties, Boyd travelled when whenever he could, meeting architects and looking at the latest American architecture. He visited New York, and as in London, he sought out and introduced himself to journal editors. He met Thomas Creighton, far left, at Progressive Architecture, Douglas Haskell and Peter Blake at Architectural Forum, the two in the middle, and John Knox Shear at Architectural Record. And he offered to submit articles to them. They were interested, and Boyd began writing. In April 1957, Progressive Architecture published his article, The Search for Pleasingness. Using quotations and images of the Vitruvian man from Rudolf Witkover's very famous book uh, of 1949, Architectural Principles in the Age of Humanism, Boyd emphasised the consistency of the rule that these two universal men, and he mentioned a whole range of these Italian theorists, were contained precisely within the perfect geometric form of a circle. He then compared this focus on the body with the mathematics of Le Corbusier's modulor, the top image uh, uh, on, the, on the left-hand side. And there's some irony in this uh, same article that's heavily theoretical in a very professional magazine, and the advertisement below is for Westinghouse, and the title is Architectural Beauty is More Than Skin Deep. A sort of, I don't think he would have planned this at all. What was Boyd was doing here was comparing Renaissance ideas of proportions at a time when architects globally were looking for an idea of what beauty meant in modern architecture. But he ultimately found fault with Le Corbusier's admission, and Le Corbusier in his book, The Modulor, freely admits, well, an architect can be free to depart from the modulor any time you like, as occasion demanded. Boyd's point was the contradictory nature of the contemporary fondness for the search for the idea of a mathematical formula for beauty through a revival of the idea of proportional systems. This was Boyd's only article for progressive architecture. Its content would, even, would have, in fact, suited much better the British readership of the Architectural Review. And his contact, Thomas Creighton, died the next... Uh, uh, sorry, uh, John Knox Shear, died the next year, so his contact had gone. Indeed, Boyd's American article on pleasingness predated the now infamous debate on whether proportional systems made good design easier at London's RIBA in June 57, 
where Peter Smithson declared the whole discussion 10 years too late. Now Boyd's next article was called Decoration Rides Again and it was clearly a play on, many of you might know the movie, cowboy movie, Destry Rides Again. Uh, Decoration Rides Again appeared in Architectural Record in September 57. It was much better directed towards his American readership and its focus was the current tendency then towards applied, insinuated and invited decoration. And for Boyd, the main offender were the perforated screens that you see there on the right of Edward Durrell Stone's US Embassy in New Delhi. The reason for these articles was Boyd's identification of a splintering of aesthetic practice that was transatlantic as well as ideological. Returning to Australia by September 1957, Boyd had now successfully inserted himself into both the British and American mainstream architectural press. And he'd done so largely on the basis of not writing about Australian architecture, but about the aesthetic dilemmas facing modern architecture, especially the rise of beauty in recent American architecture. And the possibilities also offered by the new shape arch architecture of concrete shells and tensile structure. And Boyd would consolidate his position as Australian correspondent for the Architectural Review, effectively acting in that role for 20 years after 1951, and he'd become Australian correspondent for Architectural Forum from 1959 until 1971, a period of uh, 12 years. His October 58 article for the Architectural Review, Engineering of Excitement, was internationally one of his most influential. It highlighted the global phenomenon of what was then called shape architecture, and there Boyd agreed with Italian architect Eugenio Montuori's statement that the mess is complete, a quote that Boyd borrowed directly from the Italian uh, uh, theorist Bruno Zevi's contribution in March 1956 to Architectural Forum, where, in withering style, Bruno Zevi, the Italian, had critiqued Eero Saarinen's Kresge Auditorium and Kresge Chapel at MIT the um, shell structure and then the cylinder. Both buildings designed at exactly the same time uh, but of completely different um, formal uh, intent. Boyd's article was illustrated with a dazzling cross-section of shell structures across the globe. He then focused on the shape buildings of American architect Eero Saarinen, but his real aim was to warn that if lapses of logic like the modulor were vain attempts to dev devise formulas for beauty, so too one should be wary of the delusion that the new shape architecture was leading to new realms of architectural beauty. <coughs> now, it was also no accident that Boyd included in this article the Sydney Opera House, tiny little image on the bottom right, an Australian building, albeit designed by a Danish architect. This was to be a feature of several of Boyd's articles for the Architectural Review, the subtle and some might say this is not very subtle, insertion of Australian buildings into these articles. In 1963, for example, in AR, in his article called Under Tension, Boyd's global review of tensile architecture, he included images of local architects, Kevin Borland's Catesophon Arched Rice House, these, all these buildings on the right were included in the same article. Melbourne's Olympic Swimming Stadium, the building below, the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, which is the third one on, on, the, on the right, um, and even his own house, the bottom image uh, on the right, alongside works by Fry Otto, Bruce Goff and Victor Lundy, amongst others. 
The aim, it would appear, was to underline Australia's early and equivalent engagement with contemporary ideas, a form of negating what Australian cultural theorists had described as the tyranny of distance, a fear from being distant from the centre, in short, what we in Australia call a cultural cringe. This may also help to explain the motives behind Boyd's characterisation of Australia as something like a sturdy little boat, battling across lonely waters, surging with cross currents from Europe and America. And this was his contribution to J.M. Richards, editor of AR, his book, New Buildings in the Commonwealth. Boyd, though, added the extra line that the country, though, had an ineffectual rudder. In a typical Australian form of self-deprecation, Boyd criticised rather than celebrated Australia's architectural achievements to 1960, which the accompanying illustrations actually counted with some conviction. Even his own um, house that you see here is a, in a fine example of uh, uh, mid-century architecture. And every architect that visits this house today gets out their phone and photographs madly. But Boyd's tactics seem to be a very deliberate strategy of, in the text, negating Australian achievement, uh, but supporting <coughs> Australian architecture, where one would look at the photographs and go, this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't what he says, it's actually quite good. Now, Boyd's first article for Architectural Forum was in July 1959. Entitled, Has Success Spoiled Modern Architecture?, Boyd focused on what he saw as contemporary architecture's abandonment of early modern functionalism in favour, again, of a shared search for pleasing effect and an individualistic architecture culture where, and I quote, everyone would like to be a one-man avant-garde. The article concluded with photographs of six different interpretations of beauty. It's not clear who put these six examples of beauty together. Boyd or the editor Douglas Haskell, or his assistant Peter Blake. But the images were drawn from Forum's own photographic holdings and the inclusion on the far right, top right, of Vittoriano Vigano's Istituti Marchiondi, the only non-American design building in the selection, cannot be accidental. The insertion of the Italian building, however modest, into the English-speaking discourse was a first. While the building had been published in Italy and France well beforehand, the inclusion twice in Architectural Forum predated the English critic Rainer Banham's brief discussion of the building in May 1961, its larger feature in AR in the same month, and its eventual celebration in Banham's book, The New Brutalism, in 1966. Clearly, Boyd's understanding of Italian architecture was also sophisticated. In that same month, May of 1961, Boyd became directly involved with contemporary Italian architectural discourse. He participated in the survey conducted by Ernesto Rogers, editor of Castabella. You see here the cover uh, on the left, and the wonderful contents page with a, a still from one of uh, uh, an Italian uh, neorealist film of the 40s. And this uh, issue of Castabella uh, reviewed the last 15 years of Italian architecture. Boyd joined a host of Italian architects and four non-Italians. They were the only four internationals who responded. There was Max Bill, the German uh, director of the, of the uh, uh, Ulm School, but there was also Boyd's editorial colleagues, the Architectural Forum, 
Douglas Haskell, and the Architectural Reviews editor, J.M. Richards. So he was in good company. Boyd was asked six questions, as was everyone else, on Italian architecture. And it was here that Boyd, in answer to the question as to Casabella's fifth question, which asked, who had made the most important contributions to architectural criticism in recent years? Boyd pointed to the British, and by implication, to Rainer Bannum. And this was clearly not what Casabella wanted to hear. They published Boyd's words in Italian, but pointedly redacted their appearance in English. So in the English summary, he got a sentence or two, uh, uh, and you actually have to translate the whole thing to, to see. Part of the reason that the Italians had this special issue was to, if you like, um, counter British criticism of Italian architecture culture at the time. But it was also in 1961 that Boyd's aesthetic loyalties moved in a new direction. In 1961, on the recommendation of Walter Gropius, who Boyd had met in Melbourne in 1954 on the left, the New York publishing house George Brazilla commissioned Boyd to write the first monograph on the Japanese architect Kenzo Tange. Released in 1962, this book not only put a Japanese architect alongside stars of the late 50s and early 60s, like Buckminster Fuller, Philip Johnson, Louis Kahn and Hiro Saarinen, it also elevated Boyd to a new critical status, alongside other authors in the series, like John Jacobus, Vincent Scully, and Alan Temko. The success of this book was followed by Boyd being commissioned to write another book on Japanese architecture, New Directions in Japanese Architecture in 1968, another part of another series that consolidated Boyd's position alongside critics and historians like Vittorio uh, 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 Gregotti, Royston Lando, and a young Robert Stern, later to become dean at Yale. Thereafter, Boyd's international writings in the 1960s, and especially after 1965, with the publication of his book, The Puzzle of Architecture, which concisely summarised many of the themes of his journal, journal articles, Boyd left contemporary American architecture behind with a focus almost entirely on reviewing contemporary Japanese architecture, reporting on the controversy of Jorn Utzon's resignation from the Sydney Opera House Commission in 1966, while the building was just half constructed, and critical commentaries on the architecture of world expositions. Now, these latter articles related directly to part of Boyd's architectural practice. We cannot forget that throughout this entire period from 1947 until 1971, Boyd was running, with others, a busy architectural practice in Melbourne. He was not a full-time journalist, nor was he a full-time academic. And two important roles that he had after 1965 was as, as exhibits designer for Australian pavilions in Montreal in 1967 and Osaka in 1970 where his own use of architectural ta tactics was to suggest two separate thoughts as to a message about Australia that visitors might take away with them. In Montreal, his approach was to create a relaxed, giant living room of white shag pile carpet with talking chairs <laughs> that suggested ease and relief. When you sat down, your bottom activated speakers that started speaking if um, if you had an olive green, it would speak in English. If it was orange, it would speak in French, because we were in Montreal. But it was a very smart um, uh, in, invention. In Tokyo, his 
strategy was to submerge them in a sense around film performance before sending them through a space tube, a tunnel of technology, one about life and living, the other about technology and science. Here was the construction of an Australian modernism defined not by architecture but by exhibition. Boyd's 1968 article then entitled Anti-Architecture and his series of articles on expos and exhibitionism reveal a new openness to architecture's changing profile in the late 1960s. Writing on Habitat in Montreal, the German tensile uh, engineer Fry Otto and Japanese architects at Expo 70, Boyd is cautious, even ambivalent, to ra rapidly changing definitions of architecture. Admitting that anti-architecture promises a more radical revolution than that of any new style, Boyd in 1968 was among the first to attempt to make distinctions between Archigram, the British high-tech group which he classified as anti-architecture, and the Japanese metabolists who do the uh, uh, constructions on the bottom right, which he classifies, classified as architecture far out but loyal to Vitruvian principles, between Robert Venturi, the American, edging always closer to anti-architecture and who will finally eliminate his own contradictions only when he actually achieves it, and Charles Moore and all the new Barnists. And these, Charles Moore, of course, designed Sea Ranch in Northern California. In March 1970, in his article, A Glimpse of the Future, in Architectural Forum, Boyd described Noriaki uh, Kishokurakawa's Takara Butilian, it's a great name for a pavilion, a butilian, a free-form steel pipe frame multi-storey assembly at Expo 70 as, and I quote, a glimpse as through a glass polarised darkly of what a building of the future might look like. Boyd here was speculating on what mechanisms and design tactics were brought to bed to destroy the architectural identity of a system. Here, Boyd offered the most frank and prescient critique of what contemporary Japanese architecture was offering to the world. And I quote here, Suffocation by its own servants may be the future of architecture, a Frankensteinian end as many have been hinting. The Takara building actually demonstrates the possibility for the first time and demonstrations like this are among the best justifications for world fairs. In 1970, Boyd established a series of interna international lectures in Melbourne, choosing each speaker inviting them to Australia and within each, with each lecture publishing uh, that lecture as a small book under the imprint of the Melbourne Architectural pa Papers. Only three would eventuate. The first two were given by his editorial contacts. J.M. Richards, editor of the Architectural Review, Peter Blake, who was then editor of Architectural Forum. The two journals through which Boyd had become a respected international critic. So it was almost like gratitude that he, he was doing this. Boyd, however, didn't live to hear the third lecture or read the book that result, resulted. He died on the 16th of October, 1971, aged 52. And three days later, on the evening of the day of his funeral, Italian architect and Team 10 member Giancarlo Di Carlo gave the lecture An Architecture of Participation, which was published as a small book of the same title on the left, in 1972. As the blurb on the back of the book states, Giancarlo Di Carlo completes a triangle. England, America, Italy. Clearly, this is where Boyd saw the major axes of discourse. And the same text, Giancarlo Di Carlo's text, was republished in Perspective 17, the Yale Journal in 1980, 
and that Yale publication brought Giancarlo Di Carlo back into the international spotlight of a peon of participatory design, a text that's been quoted and venerated ever since, but actually originated through Boyd's invitation uh, to Giancarlo Di Carlo to little old Melbourne in 1971. J.M. Richards would write Boyd's obituary in the London Times, and in 1973, the American Institute of Architects posthumously awarded Robin Boyd its annual Architecture Critics Medal. It was an endorsement of the respect with which he was regarded internationally. Boyd had achieved much, though invariably as an outsider, not through invitation, but infiltration. He'd invited himself into the circle and he'd worked hard to prove himself in the international setting. That his writings were referenced and discussed at some length by the celebrated Italian uh, 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 historian and theorist Manfredo Tafuri in his 1968 book Theory and Histories of Architecture is further testament to the regard in which Boyd was held. But another important aspect to Boyd's international engagement was his firm belief that Australians deserved to be part of the international scene. And his success in doing so was a demonstrable example of flouting the so-called cultural cringe that Australians laboured under in the three decades under 1940, after 1945. But so more significantly, what I've hoped I've done this afternoon is demonstrate that for too long, the many voices that gave structure to post-war architectural discourse in the 50s and 60s have been largely unheard and undocumented in the discipline's broader historiography. Boyd was like another critic of the day, Sybil Moholy-Nage in New York, who also died in 1971 whose critiques in journals such as Progressive Architecture and Architectural Forum struck a chord with practitioners and theoreticians and gave reason for pause. Their writings form part of what Belgian historian Hilda Heinen has called a shadow canon, a parallel discourse to the grand narratives of architectural history that dominated the period. Boyd may have had divided loyalties to the US and Great Britain, but he was committed to the idea that to be part of dialogue and global critique one had to participate and speak up or risk never being heard. Now, the centres of discourse that frame architecture culture are necessarily biased, and I might be talking about literature, any other discipline. But today, hindsight requires acknowledgement of a broader selection of voices to be heard. For Anglophone architecture culture, Boyd's criticism of global architectural events and the simultaneous promotion of Australian yeah. architecture was important. His voice also repre represents a different axis of architecture culture in the 50s and 60s, one that included Australia. At the same time, Africa, Asia and Oceania, Oceania, and hence places like Canada and South Africa, deserve inclusion. And recent scholars have made important contributions to constructing post-war histories for locations that lacked a figure like Boyd. Such histories require looking transnationally, across boundaries, away from the canons, and asking whether intellectual and design sustenance was to be found elsewhere. Architectural history and theory continues to pe perpetuate gaps in the theorising and documenting of architectural production, especially in Africa, Southeast Asia and the Pacific, where the concerns often were and continue to be very different. Like architectural design culture, which lionises its design geniuses, so too architectural history culture perpetuates the celebration of its own creators. For too long, figures like Nicholas Pevsner, Siegfried Gideon and Henry Russell Hitchcock dominated the construction of modernism's discourse. 
Their inheritors, like Rainer Bannum and later Manfredo Tafuri, amongst others, did much to broaden the discussion in the 60s and 70s. But in many respects, they consolidated an already canonical reading of modernism. The globalisation of post-war discourse and the mechanisms of its dissemination require broader and more complex networks to be recognised and documented. So to conclude, Robin Boyd played a key role in trying to place Australian architecture in an international setting, attempting to insert one form of local production into the prevailing international conversation. He attempted to describe the situation as it was, not as it should be. He took part in a sustained dialogue about architectural form that was focused heavily within architectural journals in the 50s and 60s. He was also part of the phenomenon of the 1960s scholarly picture book, those New Directions series. He documented the 1960s move towards the dissolution of the architectural canons, especially through Expo 67 and Expo 70. And his familiarity with and sustained exposure to contemporary architecture earned him international regard. But he was not without flaws, but he was also a constant presence. And he wasn't alone. Like the voices of several others, Udo Kultemann, Sybil Moholy-Nagy, who I've mentioned, and Naburu Kawazo, to name just a few, those of an apparent critical second tier, Boyd's voice, albeit from the margins, deserves to be heard in the ongoing documentation and analysis of post-war architectural discourse. Thanks very much.